Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why in how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those ears. And if you're watching this on video, your eyeballs are appreciated. Today, I want to introduce you to somebody that I'm almost sure you probably never heard of. And I can't believe I never heard of the guy. He's president CEO of the Rewired Group. Love the name already. Please help me welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, Bob Moesta. Hey, Bob. Hey, Victor. Thanks for having me on. Excited here to share and and tell stories. <laughs> you 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 were like you're you know I was thinking about you this morning in terms of you know this podcast and I'm going why don't more people know about Bob Moesta? So let me put, just put you on the spot yeah. right away. Why don't more people know about you, Bob? Um, so one one of the things I said very early on in my life is I would love to be the greatest footnote in history. Oh wow! <laughs> right. And so mo- most people don't know me, but I've worked on probably half the things in the grocery store, uh, a third of the things on your phone, and, you know, half the weapon systems that uh, protect us. So I, I've been an engineer and a builder. I'm an introvert. So one of the other reasons why you probably haven't really heard of me is because I just like to go build shit. <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I so love it, man. I've done seven startups. I've worked on 3,500 different products. And in the end, I'm, I'm always making something, always building something. I got a little design studio here in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, born and raised to here, and and you know, as as an automotive guy, I love to build stuff and work on uh, on a lot of other things besides cars. I love it, Matt. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but I'm an electrical engineer by background. Okay, I I actually started working for Honeywell in their undersea no. systems division. Where uh, in Cleveland uh, or in in uh, no uh, no in Hopkins, Minnesota, then in Minnesota, Minnesota, yeah, Minnesota. yeah, yeah. And I actually went. I started on their torpedo system, the undersea yeah. systems division. They went over to their test centers to basically test all the components that go into yep, the munitions. Yep. And yep. so, you know, two nerds hanging out. Yeah, I love yeah, this yeah, there we go. Yeah. And who, who knew, like, the, the thing that I would tell you is I would never have bet in a million years I would ever write a book about sales. But one of the things is, as an entrepreneur and having gone to business school and realizing how hard sales is, why in the world are there no sales professors? Why is there no, like, how can you go all the way through business and not have a class on sales? That, that It's the most insane thing in the world to me. So that's really where where my, you know, I've, I've written a few books, but it's one of those things where I wrote that book primarily because it's like the people in, in, in like entrepreneurs need to know about sales and, and ultimately sales isn't about how we sell. It's about how people buy. So I love the, the opening of your thing. It was like the why behind why people buy. Like that's been my mantra for 40 years. <laughs> yeah. I got, I got that, you know, I got the idea of this podcast back in 2008. I was reading a book by, you, I'm sure you know, Robert, Dr. Robert Cialdini. Yep. Uh, he wrote. He wrote the book called Influence. And I remember I'm in the I'm in the, I'm airport. I saw the book, and I started thinking about why can't I pl- apply behavioral economics, yep. neuroscience to sales? And that's yep. how this was born. Yep. But I want to ask you a question. How did you go from you know a little background for the folks and myself is like you know a little bit about your background, your educational background. Um, move towards like how did you make that transition and start thinking about sales? Because that's that's quite the leap. Um. So I think. I think, um, so one thing is, is, I, is people always ask me, so like, when did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Well, mm. I became an entrepreneur in, in 1992, 1993. And the reality is, is because I couldn't get a job. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so. No, and, and, mother and, of necessity, and, right? What is that? That's the right. Well, I'm, the other thing is that, so I've had, uh, I've been building things my whole life. I ended up having three close head brain injuries before I was seven years old. I can't read. I can't write. I didn't really tell anybody until I was about 35. 
I, I, you know, at some point in time, it was one of those things where, where I tried to hide it forever. And to be honest, it was one of those things where, where like, I realized that I, uh, if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I got to learn all these different things. So what I did is I, I ended up, uh, I did my first startup. Um, and then I sold that. And then my second startup, I actually went to work for a private equity firm where I, I took on the role of a, of an investment they had where I took the role of VP of sales and marketing and I knew nothing about it. <laughs> And I said, how hard it can be? It's just, you know, systems and processes, electrical engineer arrogance, right? They're like, well, it's just, it's just a system. It's just product. And it turns out it was way harder than I thought. And so ultimately I realized that, um, you know, I had some good mentors along the way. And so part of it is, is to learn. It's not about me selling. It's about them buying. And the more I could talk about and help them figure out why my product was going to fit into their lives, um, the why part. The, the easier it was to sell. And ultimately, I've done seven startups all based on that premise and, and realizing like it's something that, that, that the world needed to hear a little bit more about. And so I, I end up writing a book. So the other part is I wrote a book by basically, it was a company called Scribe Media who let me talk to them for 10 two-hour sessions and then they went off and wrote a book for me. And so I now oh, really? have done four books. And so I have, um, I have uh, you know, I have like I have some amazing mentors that basically have taught me so many different things. And so, um, I've got five more already, you know, li- lined up. Uh, I've got one a year for the next five years. Wow, amazing! I I, I want to rewind the tape a little bit because tell me about the. You said you had like three brain injuries. Yeah, like what happened there? So um, one is I was uh, I was I had a I had, I was playing uh, conduit swords with a friend, and basically we we ended up uh, uh, I ended up jabbing towards him when he put it out, and he put a conduit in my head right here. I got a plate basically almost three quarters of an inch into my head. And then I got hit from the back of the head. I got hit back here with a rock. And then uh, I built a parachute and jumped off my second story. Uh, I never said I was smart. Um, jumped, jumped off my, my second story house and broke both my legs and was in a coma. So, wow. uh, What's a, I mean, that's... I, I, so, I, so, I wanted to build a parachute and I, I just failed at it. Yeah. You were born to be an experimenter. So, so what, what, what's interesting though is I believe that those things happen to me and that though I have a disability and most people would label it as a disability, it gave me a super ability and that everybody has a superpower. And my superpower happens to be that my primary language is math. I see everything in uh, entities and relationships. And then Mm -hmm. ultimately I can describe everything in a math equation. And so for me, that, that was my gift that I can see patterns that nobody else can see or most people can't see until I actually have to show them how I can see it. And so um, I, I, I'm a big proponent of not forcing people who have, you know, something wrong to try. Like they, kept, they would always talk to me about wanting to be normal. Oh, we can make mm-hmm. you normal. I'm like, no, I don't want to be normal. I, mm-hmm. I don't mind having this little difference. And that's why the name of my company is Rewired because the way the neurologist talked about my brain was, he goes, I had, this is almost in 2000, like, I have no idea how you're doing what you're doing because it looks like you're a, you're a, a stroke victim, a 65-year-old stroke victim who shouldn't be able to do what you do, but like, keep doing it. So that, they've been studying me for almost uh, 22 years. That's amazing. I mean, the brain is amazing, right? The plasticity yeah, that's of the brain I, is just I always amazing. say, we don't really know how, I, I, I still don't think we know how the brain really works. I think we're still compartmentalizing and, and, and we're not, we're, we're averaging as opposed to seeing patterns. And so I think there's a lot of, everybody's brain's different, but I don't believe that there's like, you know, a, a million different brains. I believe that there's different styles of brains. 
Right. I, I love that. And by the way, I've always viewed the brain as, uh, we both took engineering courses, black boxes, right? Exactly. Put in some inputs, look at measure the outputs and try to figure out what's inside that. By the way, I love that message because it's very uplifting for people who probably have different learning styles. Yeah. To say, find your, find your method. I, yeah. I want to fast forward to, you know, I came across, uh, I was reading Clay Christensen, who I want you to talk about in just a bit, because yeah. I thought, again, an understated, gentle giant. Gen- literally literally six a- foot nine, uh, yeah. you know, your hand disappears when you went to shake his hand. Like he was, and and literally I would be in his office and he'd be, uh, he'd be sitting on his desk cross-legged like a, like a five-year-old in kindergarten. He's just like a gentle Amazing. giant is the best way to describe him. So his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, I don't know what I was looking for. You know how you just go down the YouTube rabbit hole? Bob, yeah, yeah. And it, so so I, I come across this guy and he's the innovator's dilemma. Okay. And I just started listening to this guy and he's a very methodical, slow speaker, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to last more than five minutes with this guy. And man, I think I watched one of his video sessions on, on, on that topic at like at least three to four times. And so he kept mentioning this thing called jobs to be done. Yeah. So, so tie these two things for me. First yeah. of all, tell me who Clay was. Yes. And then tell me what he meant to you. And if I can add a third one, then let's get the jobs to be done soon. So this is my office and mm-hmm. these are my mentors. Right. Right. So the first guy, the, the first person on, on the, uh, up there is Dr. Willie Moore, who was my first boss at Ford Motor Company. The other one is Dr. Genichi Taguchi. The third mm-hmm. one is uh, Clayton Christensen. And the fourth one is Dr. Deming. I had, mm-hmm. I worked for all of them at one point in time in my career. I was Deming's intern, who was the father of the quality systems. When I was 18, he was 85. So wow. like, and, and I met Clay, basically, it, it's funny, Clay had a, had a sign outside his office and it basically said, anomalies wanted. <laughs> so I happened, to be, I happened to be on campus and I happened to be seeing somebody else and I literally saw the sign. I'm like, I think I'm supposed to go in that door. <laughs> anomalies wanted, that, that's and, original, man. And that's so original. I, I go into his office and one of the things I asked him, you know, basically I said, look, you don't know me from Adam. I know that you're a fairly new professor, but like, I would love to help you in any way. Is there anything I can do to help? And he just, he stopped and he paused and he almost like, like he, he was emotional. And he goes, I've been here for two years and no one has ever asked me that yet. Wow. And so that's how we became friends. And okay. so, and, good. No, I was going to ask you, tell me, because fo- you and I know who he is, yeah. but I want you to tell the folks. Oh, on this yeah. So Clay, who this Clay guy is, is the father of disruptive innovation. He is a he is a Harvard Business School professor who who basically has been studying like how do leading companies, companies who are at the top of their game, get disrupted by small, you know, I, I, you know people who are kind of like on the fringes and ultimately go to their demise. People like mm. you know uh, Digital Equipment Corporation or Kodak or you know, it's like, these are all people who had the smartest management teams. They paid them very, very well, yet they couldn't get out of their own way. And so he built a theory around it called disruption theory, which is how do big companies or the incumbents get disrupted and how does that work? And so he wrote a book called uh, called The Innovator's Dilemma, is that at some point in time, uh, like digital equipment invented the PC, but but at some point they basically said, why would somebody want a $1,000 computer when we make a $150,000 computer and we, you know, and standard software, nobody wants that. So they literally threw it to the side and Xerox and, and Apple picked it up and IBM picked it up. So it was one of those things where like the, the person who was running the industry literally invented the next thing, but they couldn't even see it. And so he went yeah. off and, and, and studied time after time after time how industries get disrupted by both technology and or, um, you know, uh, uh, I'll say business models. Ultimately, 
by by understanding what we call the underserved, the people who want to make progress but can't, and that you can actually end up creating services that at the low end of the market that end up disrupting the high end of the market. And that, by the way, the example that stood out for me, you know, I saw the deck one, was the the steel industry? Oh yeah, the steel industry is a fabulous one. Well, again, right. being an automotive like that was that that was close, near and dear to my heart for sure, right? Yeah. Where where there was an invention of something called the mini mill, right? And right. what happened is is that the way that that they ended up kind of uh, understanding what was going on is that that the that like the bit U.S. steel kept going bigger and bigger and bigger, and so to get mm-hmm. steel, they had to actually make everything like larger and larger batches. Where the mini mill was basically taking regrind or basically scrap metal and making rebar from it, mm-hmm. and what happened is, is the it turns out that like U.S. Steel made rebar, but they really didn't make much margin on it, and they'd rather go up market. So they literally gave the rebar market to uh, the, the 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 mini mills, mm-hmm. and then ultimately the mini mill learned how to make you know folding steel or uh, rolling steel, and then they learned how to make custom steel, and and they moved up and up market, and ultimately pushed U.S. Steel out of out of business because they kept trying to go up market, and there was nowhere to go. Yeah, so it's just, that was, it's that just was such a powerful example, and the way he lays it out, and I think the part that I really that really resonated with me, Bob, was where instead of investing more money in new disruptive technology because it's too difficult, they just spent more investment dollars in, I think, efficiencies, Effic- efficiencies, right? and building more and more efficient. So, so this is where efficiency goes wrong, right? Because we end up becoming so so efficient that we end up at the high high end of the market that we actually lose our effectiveness. Right. And so this is where we, we become blinded because we look at margin, we look at, you know, all these different things around strategy, but what it does is it forces us to constantly go up market, which then blinds us from the low end. And to be honest, U.S. Steel looked at, at the mini mills and said, thought they were a joke. Mm-hmm. Almost everybody looks at everybody else at like, think of the camera, right? Hasenblad and Canon and Nikon, they all looked at Apple and laughed like, that's not a camera. Mm-hmm. Their, their sales are down 90%. And yet, really, the number, that much? The that number much. of pictures that have been taken, they're down 90% in the last 10 years. And, and ultimately, the number of pictures have over 10,000 x So more right. pictures and less, less cameras. And so you start to realize, like, what happened? Well, they, they literally looked at camera phones and laughed mm-hmm. until we got better, until they got better, and they got better. And the best camera to have is the one with you. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. The one that's easily available right there. That's right. Uh, I want to talk about this concept of jobs to be done. Yeah. I heard that. And then I think that's where your name was mentioned somewhere. Yep. And then yep. I, so, so one of my hacks, so the thing is, is that again, being dyslexic, one of the things is I would get uh, market research reports and they'd give me these right. reports to tell me everything that was going on in the market. And here's what we got to go build. And, 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 and one of the things is because I'm d- dyslexic, I couldn't read any of the reports. So I'm like, let me just go talk to a few people. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it was this, I learned criminal and intelligence interrogation so I could learn <laughs> why people really did what they did as opposed to what they say they did because they lie. They, they don't lie on purpose. They, you know what I mean. No, wait, by the way, I'm laughing only because I just finished reading this huge book on deceit, right? So you're making me laugh because I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's yeah, trying yeah. to figure out the real from the not real. Yeah, yeah. well, Chris Voss has a great book, Never Split the Difference. It has all the techniques in it, right? But but ultimately, jobs we've done is that people don't, buy products. They hire them to make progress in their life. So think of it as like most people's just focus on the sale, but the only person who's focused on the sale is the company, right? The, 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 the customer doesn't focus on the sale. They focus on what they're going to do with the sale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so how do you take a step back and understand what is it about their context? And mm-hmm. what is it about the outcome they want that says, today's the day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scrap my old CRM and I'm going to buy a new CRM. 
mm-hmm. I'm going to scrap my old uh, you know, email system and buy a new email system. And you start to realize it's not random. Nothing's random. It's mm-hmm. all caused. And so Jobs Be Done is, this, is, a, is a methodology and a, and a theory that basically focuses on how do we actually understand what causes people to say today's the day they're going to do something different. Right. And when we understand, and I've been studying that for 40 years, and I have I built methodologies around it and software and a whole bunch of other things. But ultimately, what, what for me, the, the whole aspect is, is that sales is what I call a supply-side concept, meaning supply-side is the stuff we build. And, the, and, and that, you know, uh, at some point, the company has a sales process. But the demand side, where the customer is, they have actually a buying process. Mm-hmm. And what we really need to do is understand how they buy or how they want to buy and mimic our sales process to fit how they want to buy, not how we want to sell. And you start to realize the sales process is actually run less and less by salespeople and more and more by marketing and finance. And so part of this is we need to get back to understanding how to help customers make progress and to realize like, just because it's the end of the quarter and you're going to give me the opportunity to give a discount to close a sale because your forecast is wrong. The reality is, is like the value that I'm actually, I'm devaluing us if I give them a discount. So part of this is actually understanding the demand side way more. And so that's really what demand side, uh, demand side sales 101 is all about. Man, you were, you were brutal just now. You don't even realize how brutal you were. That sales is not about <laughs> selling. It's about marketing and finance. But well, I call it the church of finance because like when can a 25-year-old kid with a spreadsheet sit across me and go like, you're behind. I'm like, right. how do you know I'm behind? It's like, well, you said you're going to be here. I'm like, in innovation, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Mm-hmm. Like, you think it's predictable. You want it to be predictable. And if I try to do things that are predictable, I'm really not innovating. That's correct. That's correct. I, I love the fact that I, I think sales has changed. I think marketing is now taking pole position. I've just never thrown finance into the pot. But from the buyer's side, you're absolutely right. I wanted you to go through the the concept to me, jobs to be done. I, you know, I had this vague notion. I said, I think I understand what Bob is saying yeah. and what uh, um, Clay is right. saying. But yeah. when you gave the milkshake example, yeah, yeah. I want you to walk through so, the milkshake example yeah. because I want people to get it. Because that, that just when I heard all the tumblers go click. Yeah, yeah. You did that example. So please Clay, go through that. Clay, Clay uh, we, we, we worked with a fast food restaurant. And one of the things that was going on was we asked them about what was the least productive piece of equipment in the store. And it turns out it was the milkshake uh, uh, piece of equipment. And it turns out that um, it was least productive because it didn't get turned on until noon. And so one of the things we did is we went into the, 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 the cash register data and we found out that there were these three stores, an, an anomaly, if you will, that, ran, that basically were selling milkshakes before eight in the morning. And we're like, what in the world is going on? And th- to be honest, it, it violated the, the, the franchise agreement at the time because nobody's supposed to turn it on until 11. Or, yeah, 11. And so what happened is that we went and studied those, those places say like, why in the world are people buying milkshakes at, at, at you know, this is 1994, 95, right? Why are they buying milkshakes in the morning? And it turns out, I, I was the research. I went down, went to the stores and knocked on people's windows as they went through the drive-thru and said, like, I'm sorry, but I have to ask you, why in the world are you buying a milkshake? And they're like, look, I got a long commute. They happened to be, these stores were like, you know, uh, LA, uh, uh, Atlanta, and Dallas. And it was like, what is it? And it turns out they all had an hour commute. And the things that they would say is like, look, I wanted to sleep a little longer. I needed to put some food into my body. I, it lasted me the entire time I was there. It's got protein. It's got, it's got carbohydrates. It's got fat. It's going to hold me over to lunch. And to be honest, it, it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty good. And we're like, okay, that's a little strange, but let's, let's think about that. So we went off and, and, and you start to realize if you think about the competitive set for milkshakes in the morning, it's bagels, it's bananas, it's, 
It's all these different things. And you start to realize that the true competitive set from a customer perspective is very different than a competitive set from a from the supply side perspective or the manufacturer perspective. Because we think about making this shake thicker or chocolate or all these different things. But that's not the thing is what we end up doing is building a set of, series of shakes that were like uh, uh, cinnamon twist and, you know, uh, uh, strawberry banana and uh, orange, uh, orange uh, citrus. And you start to realize that we made them yogurt. All of a sudden, the thing took off like no, there's no tomorrow. And so part of this is to realize like the anomalies uh, embedded in the anomalies of the past is the DNA of the future. And so if we can figure out kind of where those anomalies lie, that's where disruptive innovation comes from. And so that, that fast food company now is one of the largest smoothie makers in the world. Yeah, I love that. And I, and I think the story, so it's the simplified version. It was that you hired the shake to do a job. And yeah, the right. job was to get me through traffic. That's and right. Then well, I think, and, and to keep my stomach and keep my stomach from growling and literally hold me to lunch. Right. And then I think I think Clay and maybe it was you who mentioned that you know why not a Snickers bar? Why not a, yeah. as you say a bagel or something else? One was too messy. One was too clumsy. One didn't last. Right. And that concept was very powerful. There was one more oh. example that you gave in your book, Demand Side Sales, which I highly recommend. That was a sleeper book for me. I got to be honest. You know, I yeah. looked at that. I go. I'd seen your background. I go, why is this guy writing a sales book? I mean, I was just exactly. And then I read the book and I'm like, oh my God, he gets it. He gets the demand side. Yeah. Hit me with the example that you talked about the the senior citizens downsizing. Oh yeah. Because that was, it's like that example for me helped when I, when I explain, and by the way, I always give you credit. Uh, when I explained that example, I said, here's an example of somebody who understands what demand side really means and understands how to reduce yeah. that anxiety. Give us that example about senior citizens yeah. trying to downsize. So, so 2005, 2008, I built a thousand homes here in Detroit. I, uh, I just, uh, I, I closed down a private equity firm. I built from 2099 to about 2004, uh, 2005. And, um, I was traveling a lot. I had four kids. So I said, all right, what can I go do where I don't have to travel? And so, you know what? I said, I could build homes. Again, as an entrepreneur, you yeah, just like, okay, do that. By the way, that's what everybody thinks about, right? Right. right. So I went and found a builder who was like number three in the market or number four in the market. And I said, hey, hey, why don't we partner? I'd love to be able to help. Let, look, I'll work for you for, for a year. And after a year, we'll buy in and we'll figure this out. And so I go into it and they and I said, I know nothing about selling homes. And so they they start out by, you know, giving me a focus group of people who want to buy homes. They like, like they show me all the features and benefits they have of the of the of the homes they have. And they're doing about a hundred homes a year at the time. And and ultimately the fact is, is like I realized like. Like we're talking to the wrong people. We should talk to people who already bought the house. We need to talk to people who want to, you know, don't want to buy a house. They've bought it because we're going to learn more about the trade-offs they made and the, and the progress they're trying to make. And so, one of the people we focused on were downsizers, and we talk about kind of this whole notion of that there's 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 uh, what we call a push or a part of their context that makes them move, and, and then there's an outcome like I want to be able to travel more, or I want to be closer to the kids, or you know, I don't want all this big house anymore. And then there's anxieties and habits. And one of the things we started to realize is that one is, is that um, as, as we, as we, uh, as I started to kind of get involved in it, we, we had people who would sign up for a house, they put $2,500 down and they'd come back three weeks later and they'd cancel. And they'd mm -hmm. cancel primarily because, and we'd had like a 30, 40% cancellation rate is large with this particular segment. And what we found was that they would go home and try to clean out a closet to move. And it was just too much emotional baggage for them. They would go through two, two or three boxes of Kleenex. They'd have 12 or 
you know, so many closets. They'd have a basement full of stuff they haven't touched in 40 years. And ultimately, they couldn't figure, like at some point, like they wanted to move, but they just couldn't emotionally make it happen. So one of the things we figured out was, you know what, I'm going to actually, I raised the price of the condo, but I included moving and two years of storage and a place in the clubhouse to sort all the stuff. Increased my sales by almost 22%, mm-hmm. right? And so this whole notion of being able to understand the struggling moment and what are the what are the frictional points that are in their lives that basically hinder them from trying to make that progress and how do I actually do that? And so instead of building a you know, or running a promotion of free granite or stainless steel appliances or hardwood floors. I basically, I actually never gave promotions and and really just focused on trying to help them make progress. The other thing I ended up doing was I realized that as they sold their house, people would want to, you know, at some point, their houses needed new roofs, they needed, you know, windows, they needed, you know, to be painted. And I had crews. And so I ended up doing almost a, a thousand new homes, but we did almost 500 used homes as well. And we would fix them up and sell them. And so it was that combination of doing both where I went from building, being in the, what I called the builder market to mm-hmm. being in the moving market. My job is to help people move on, move up, and start building a better life. And, and that whole model, I mean, like I said, what I love about the books, also you throw in some simple graphics so you can grab the concepts. Yeah. That whole pushing them into the future, right? Things you want to do and the outcome you want, that's to push towards the future. Yeah. And you said it very quickly, the pull that holds you back is habits and anxiety, right? Yeah, that's the friction, yep. Right, that's the friction, or, or, you know, I like to collect the mental breaks that hold you back from moving. And your job, and and I thought it was interesting in that real estate example, is that you just remove those mental breaks by, you got the sorting room in there, you got the storage. I think there was also an example of, um, I think they wanted their living room because they had a dining room table. Yeah, yeah, so so one of the things they would say is they they didn't want, like, they, 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 they almost all said, like, I don't want a dining room. I want a, I want a small kitchen area. I want an eating bar, but like I actually don't want to do the holidays anymore. Like I want to pass that up to somebody mm-hmm. else. But it turns out that there was a huge frictional coefficient or friction around it, meaning that that if they didn't know where the dining room table was going to go, they weren't going to move because they, they, at some point they're not going to throw it out. They're not going to put it in the basement. It doesn't go in the garage, and you start to realize that the the the, the dining room table was the emotional bank account of their life. And right. so what, what, what we did is we ended up, uh, the second bedroom was a suite for when the kids came to visit and had, you know, where the, ki- the, the grandkids could go play. And, but we cut that down. I built, a, I built out a very small area that basically you could put the dining room table, but you could never eat at it. It's almost like it was a, like a, like a, <laughs> you know, a statue or a, like it was, a, it was like a, you know, a trophy cabinet, right? Mm-hmm. Barely get this, the chairs out of it. But at the same time, the fact is, is it gave us almost a 17% increase in sales. And so it's, yeah, this is a good example of where people say they don't want to do it. Yes. But the but at the same time, that's not what they meant. The fact is what they 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 by making it small enough, I could actually make sure that they never had to have dining uh, the the holidays there. But at the same time, they didn't have to get rid of the dining room table. I, I love that example. And I think at, to wrap that story up, I think you said your sales increased by X while the industry was going down by yep. Y. What was that swing? I remember it was pretty yeah, significant. Yeah, so, so we, we went from 4% market share to 14% market share. And, the, wow. and, the, and, the, and at, that, at that point, the, the, the market was off almost 50% and we were up almost 200%. Amazing numbers, man. Amazing and so, numbers. And so part of this is to realize, like, so the way that I looked at it was this, is a, it's a very simple question. It's like, how many people want to move but can't? Mm. That's, that's the disruptive question that Clay would ask, right? How many people want to move but can't? Are, and what can I do to help them do that? And that's right. what I did. Yeah. And, so, no, I, and it's ahead, like, how many people want a new mattress but don't know it, right? So in the book, I talk about Casper, where it's like, you know, the greatest competitor to a new mattress 
is a bottle of Zequil. It's not another mattress, right? right? It's a bottle of scotch. It's right. like, it's, it's, it's things that you start to realize like, oh my gosh, like, okay. Like the, the funniest part is we realize that people, people who can't sleep are looking for mattresses. So we would run sales from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yep. Perfect timing. <laughs> right? I don't that wasn't in the book, was it? Oh, I don't know if that was in the book. But the, the, I, got, I got a thousand of them. But it's, it's one of those things as, and what I realized is, say, so, so here's the thing is sales is probably the single greatest, most important part of any business. And yet we treat it like it's a trade. I agree. And, and at the same time, the fact is the ultimate of all professionals that I know are salespeople. They know mm-hmm. how to help me. They know how to help themselves. They know how to actually help me frame trade-offs. They're, they're very, very good. It's the problem is, is we have a few uh, rotten apples that spoil the bunch. And the reality Mm -hmm. is like sales is a very, very fulfilling career for people who basically love to help people. But once you flip it from, I've got to, you know, I've got to make my quota to let me go help people. Once they put on the lens of helping people, you start to realize like a lot of people do it. A teacher is more of a salesperson than we think. Like a a teacher has to sell the lesson to the child or the student so they can learn, right? A nurse has to, a nurse or a doctor has to sell the rehab program to the patient. Like everybody has to sell. And so if we actually understand the progress people are trying to make, it makes it way easier for us to help people make progress. And we're not really selling to, to, to take advantage of anybody. Correct. Yeah, it's funny because I'm, I'm always saying that sales is a noble profession when done it correctly. Is. It when is. it's a value for value exchange, it is a noble profession. That's right. Now I want to. I want to change the, the, other, shift wait, the one. The one other thing okay. I'll add to you on this is: is it's never about price. I'm sure you probably say that all the time, but most people don't understand. Like they'll say price, but that's not what they mean. It's usually value. It's about right. the, they're not getting enough for what they have, or you have too much for what they want. And so most of the time, most people focus on price and they'll say, "Oh, I can't. It's price. It's price. It's price." It's usually never price. It's always value. Thank you, Bob Boesta. Thank you. I'll just probably. Grab that, re-edit it, spin it backwards, and play it again. You, you By the it. way, in, in your the the senior citizen downsizing example, I think you actually raised your price. Correct? I did. I did. I and raised so my price. So you didn't drop price to sell more. You raised your price. I raised my price, but I included all those kinds of things, and I, I made sure that I could actually fit into people's lives. And so that was the whole aspect: is how do I actually make that happen? And and you start to realize that as long as I like. The thing is, is the moment you'd actually put promotion on there, oh, the granite, I've offered $5,000 off from free granite, mm-hmm. right? And you realize like it just backfired because everybody's like, well, you know, it's not free. You just raised the price, blah, blah. And my little thing is like, no, I, I'm promotions actually make me feel more slimy. Right, right. No, what, what, what I loved about that example, it's so counterintuitive because most people won't do that. Add all these extras, I'll call them. And yeah. they, because I go, well, I don't want to have to raise the price because then I'm not competitive. Your mindset was different. I'm not trying to be competitive. I'm oh. trying to give the client what they want. Right. Well, more. It, I give it it happens over and over again. So I do you know uh, the company Basecamp at all? I do not. You know, so Basecamp is a, is a software program, a software platform that basically helps manage projects. It's used mostly in the tech firm or whatever. And it was $39 a month. And mm-hmm. one of the things we found out was like, there were people who were basically saying for $39 a month, I can run my entire business. I'd like, that can't be true. So we, 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 you know, they went off and basically we, we, we did the analysis and came back and said, we're going to raise it to $99 a month. And mm-hmm. we thought we were going to lose 20% of the, of our, of our current users. It turns out we didn't lose them. We actually gained another 40% of players. So we grew, mm-hmm. we not only doubled our revenue or almost, you know, two and a half times our revenue. We, 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 on top of that, we gained because now people thought it was credible enough to run their business for $100 a month. 
It's crazy. It so, so this is where again, it's not about price. We 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 misinterpret price because again, the number one lie is why people say we didn't get the deal was price. And right. I will tell you, having done enough interrogation, that nine times out of ten, it's sometimes people are actually comfortable paying more. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. I, by the way, I think Neil Rackham years ago did a study. Obviously, it's data because it was like in 87, 89. Yeah. But I remember that coming up in sales where he was like 10% of the people more or less won't buy because economically they just can't. Yeah. Right? And he said, but the other 90% are all yours, which goes to what you're saying. Yeah, but but for those 10% that can't, how do we actually make an offering to them? So this is where, mm-hmm. like I work with uh, SNHU where where they basically figured out how to go for the for these uh, uh, basically uh, distance learning or basically people who would not come to school anymore. And they they went from uh, 500 online students to they have over almost 200,000 online students right now. It's amazing. Crazy. That's amazing. I, I, I love the story. But, and by the mm-hmm. way, I, I'm glad you're hitting the price thing because I think as we move, and I hate to say the R word, but the potential of a recession, oh, you know, I, people are going to say, well, go ahead. I, I don't want to I love you. a recession. I'm excited Me, for the recession. Yeah. Too. You know, this is what way, most people yeah. don't understand is that one is, number one is a recession implies that we're going to all have to change behavior. We're going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to make trade-offs, which means right. we have to change behavior. The other part is you have to realize that most entrepreneurs, most startups all happen in a recession, mm-hmm. right? And the most wealth creation happens from a recession. And so the fact is, is we need, a, we need a reset to actually have us do it. But too many people are still trying to figure out what we did in the past as opposed to like, yeah. what are we going to do in the future? And so the way, more you I, can I gotta, actually Bob, I gotta adjust ask. yourself. I, I got to ask. I got to ask. Are you yeah. are you familiar with Ayn Rand or Milton Friedman? Yes, both. Okay. Because I hear it in your language, by the way. That's what I'm saying. You know, when you talk about wealth creation and things of that nature, and Milton Friedman was the one that said uh, years ago, he said, uh, recessions are good because they squeeze out the excess in the market. In other yes. words, not real players. So there's more the people, The people who shouldn't be here. Like, And, and yeah. I mean like, like, how do I say that? You're more and, and brutal I mean, about it, buddy. You're more brutal. No, no. But here's what I'm saying. And I just want to make sure it's, I'm clear about it. It's like, those people who like shouldn't be in the building business should be in some other business. They might need to be in the home improvement business. And so this right. is where it actually helps people realign themselves to what they're really good at. There is the word. Yep. And, and so because... what happens is we we keep thinking like, oh, I want to do this software business. And it's like, maybe maybe it's not software. Maybe you need to be in the services business. And you start to realize like, it forces you to to actually readjust and get more aligned to your purpose and what you're and, good and at that, and what your what your unique super abilities are. And so, a lot of times, uh, the the a, a very good economy helps us stay in a in in a situation that is really not long term tenure good for us. I I did know what you stated earlier uh, that during you said you know trade offs trade offs change behavior trade you know yep. as we change the behavior you said recession creates more opportunities for entrepreneurs. And yep. more ability for wealth creation. Yep. You know, uh, add some more flavor to that because I've never heard. Yeah. Of so, so, way. so here's the thing is, so I've been, uh, so I, I have like these deep research projects. So for the last five years, I've been studying what causes somebody to say, today's the day I'm going to leave this company and go to that company. Hmm. And you, the first thing you can start to see is it's accelerating. People are, 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 are switching positions more and more often. One, two is, that there's a big there's a macro shift in that it's gone from companies hiring employees to employees hiring companies right and and the other part is then what we have is this notion of the side gig where before in the world we'd have people who had two jobs because they needed to make ends meet now we have people doing side jobs so they can do something they love to do 
And so you start to realize that the whole world is starting to change in terms of these kinds of things. And so this is where, again, like we, we, you know, being able to help people figure out what their purpose is, what they want to do, what they're good at, what they love to do, what gives them energy, what sucks their energy. You start to realize like situations like this are going to force you to think about those things and start to realize how do I actually shape my life to be better? Where, where when things are going well, we just keep doing what we're doing. We don't change our behavior. You know, the pandemic was a great example of a right turn. Yeah. You know, in terms of a total disruption. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that, on what's happening yeah. in the market so, now? So th- this is the thing is that that I think, though the pandemic was a horrible thing, like the, this is, uh, I, I have a couple of coaches and they always laugh because when they, when they try to push me outside my comfort zone, I smile. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't figure out why you're smiling. I'm like, all I know is the more pain I feel, the more I know I'm going to learn. Yeah. Uh. Good, right good perspective and man. so yeah. and so i think so to me the pandemic what we started to realize is most people going into it were like this is crazy we should but what happened is is we learned about family again we learned about basically being able to you know the the, the whole notion of not commuting oh my gosh you know i can work from home because it's better than not working at all and next thing you know we're all remote workers and right. so you start to realize there's a lot of really good things that happen when things go bad and so part of it is to always look for the good. Most people focus too long in the bad, and they mm-hmm. don't actually look for the good in the middle of the bad. Right. So I love the way you said that. Look at your new book now, Learning to Build. I, I want to yeah. go to your new book that you just launched, which is Five Bedrock Skills of Innovators and Entrepreneurs. I mean, if yeah. we're moving into this you know, recession and it's the, it's the opportunity for entrepreneurs to launch their yeah. business, uh, talk to me about what motivated you to write that book. Yeah. So uh, my youngest graduated from college and moved out. So I'm a, technically an empty nester. I'm there with and so, you. And so I, uh, um, as she moved to California, so I have two in California, one in uh, Montana, one here in Detroit. Oh, wow. And um, as I'm doing that, I'm like, okay, time to go up to the attic. And you know, I have a, it's called the tree house, which is where I've started all of my businesses. And it's kind of like, it's got all my notebooks. It's got everything in it. I'm like, okay, we got to start cleaning this out because we don't know when, when we're going to downsize, right? And so I have 847 notebooks and I, my wife and I started talking about, I'm like, we need to get a dumpster. I got to get rid of these notebooks. And she's like, no, no, we're not going to get rid of the no- notebooks. I'm like, well, I want you to just go through them. I'm like, okay. And I would go through them and I realized like how much I learned and how much I would say these four mentors meant to me mm-hmm. and how they helped me. Like, again, think of it as I'm a dyslexic, illiterate kid at 18 years old and I know nothing. And those four poured everything into me to enable me to, you know, I was told my, my high school uh, uh, career test was a baggage handler at the airport. That's mm-hmm. what it said I should do. Yeah. And, and ultimately, I've been we're able to work on everything from the space shuttle and, and, you know, the Patriot missile to Pokemon mac and cheese and, you know, Google. So it's just kind of, and so what I did is I said, all right, like, what did they teach me? And then uh, if I look at the, you know, the top I'll say 20 entrepreneurs, innovators I've worked with, what do they know that, that the rest of the world doesn't know. And mm-hmm. so I kind of took a step back and said, look, here, and I started with eight and then I got it to four and then I, I, I messed with it. But I got to five essential skills that people, you know, really good innovators and entrepreneurs have and that I had evolved over time. And so in the right. book, I talk about this notion of what I call young Bob and how I used to think about mm-hmm. things and now enlightened Bob after, after basically going through kind of all this learning and transformation. 
And so one of them is what I call empathetic perspective. Really good innovators and entrepreneurs can see things from many perspectives. They can see it from the customer perspective. They can see it from the finance perspective. They can see it from the investor perspective. They can, they can, and they can see it emotionally detached from themselves. Like this is how they're going to see it. This is how they're going to be upset. This is what they're going to see. So they actually know how to connect dots by seeing and playing the role of other people. And you start to realize that it's, that, you know, Again, as we're us both both being engineer geeks, they never told us that. We thought everything was about basically seeing things from one perspective. But the way you learn this is through art. You learn it through theater. You learn it through improv, right? And so it's this is a really big skill. Another one is called uncovering demand. Another one is causal structures. Most entrepreneurs and innovators think in cause and effect. And then there's prototyping to learn, and then identifying and managing trade-offs. So it's these five skills that that that. Are, are essential that most people haven't taught. I mean, there's always curiosity and there's creativity and that, but these are like skills that you can hone and refine. And to be honest, we all possess these skills. It's the innovation entrepreneurs who've taken those skills and taken them to level 10, you know, mm-hmm. from level two that really kind of make them special. I'm, I'm at your, uh, I'm at the prototyping skill set. Yeah, you the prototyping to learn. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, where, it's, it's a powerful one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 I love your concept of the green line and the red line. And yeah. then I've also, I love that you're, you're such a nerd. You really are a nerd. You start talking <laughs> about orthogonal arrays. And yeah. I go, no, I haven't heard that in a while. So, so I'm reading that and I'm watching what you're doing with the catapult example. Yeah. Right. And by the way, that, I think that was very, when you first mentioned at the beginning, I kind of got it. But then when you got into the prototyping and you went through the arrays yeah, and you laid it out, this is my feedback to you. I was like, oh, I get what he's talking about now. And talk about this, this green line, red line thing was really yeah. fascinating to me. I never really looked at it that way. Yeah. I, th- so we talk about like, so when I was a Ford Motor Company, uh, basically, uh, we w- we had the chance to go study different companies around kind of how they did product development. And one of the things that we did is we did, uh, took us about 72 months at the time to develop a car from concept to customer. So about six years. And and ultimately, what would happen is is that that uh, our competition, people like Toyota and Honda, and and even in, in Germany, they, they could do it in anywhere from four years to three years. So for every one car we would develop, they would take that, they could do two. So they were just killing us in terms of that kind of, uh, with that speed. And so I, I was uh, part of a team that basically was uh, tasked to get us from 72 months to 36 months. And what we learned was, is how they prototyped and how they learned. And most of the time they prototyped to verify, they prototyped to literally uh, like at Ford, we would literally say, all right, this works. Okay, that works. Okay. And then when we put it together, it wouldn't work. And then we'd mm-hmm. point fingers at each other and say, well, it's not my fault because it worked when I did it and it didn't work when they did it. And so all of a sudden you end up having this escalating pieces of change. So everything was reactive where what you found in, in companies that were green line is that they actually would cause it to fail up front. They would prototype to learn when it would fail. Where are the boundaries of when, when failure would happen? And so you started to realize that that they had to prototype completely differently. And so I always, I go back to this notion that, that A-B testing, the way I was taught it, was actually the worst, most inefficient and ineffective way to test anything. Yet that's how most of the software co- industries work right yes. now. Yes. Right? And, and so ultimately it's built a house of cards because it's like A or B, A or B, and you keep picking, but you don't know why. Why is the most important part? And so part of this is to use the math of an orthogonal array to help you let, let it help you build things and that you're going to figure out and let, as Taguchi would always say, we're going to let the engine tell us what the best engine is. We're not no. going to hypothesize it. And out of it, then we can build better theory. 
And so ultimately, it's a very empirical method. And what you find is really good entrepreneurs are letting the data drive them as opposed to the theory drive them. I love it, Bob. Bob, I got to wrap this up, man. That was, I wish I had more time, man. I should have scheduled two hours with you, but oh, that's let all me... right. No, I, I, so I here's the deal. My thing is, is, is let your audience, uh, you know, digest. And my thing is, if they come back with questions, let's do a, let's do a, let's do a, like a, you know, a fireside chat around questions that you got from your audience. I love it. Done deal, man. Lily, done it. deal. By the way, uh, before we sign off, let these folks know where they can find out more information yeah, about you. And yeah, your book. best place to find me is on LinkedIn, uh, uh, Bob Mesta, M O E S T A. And then if you go to Amazon, I have uh, Amazon is both uh, learning to build and uh, demand side sales. And then I got a new book that's coming out in uh, 2024 or 2023. It's going to be uh, right now the working title is Hire Your Next Job. And it's all about basically helping you look at your career and understand how to manage the progress in your career. I love it. Bob, thank you very much. And on that Thanks note- Thanks for having me on. No worries. On that note, this is Victor Antonio with the Sales Influence Podcast. Leave us some feedback. Also, leave us some questions if you have any for Bob. and love to have him back for the second time. Uh, check out his website. Check out LinkedIn. By the way, the Demand Side Sales book, definite must get. Learn to build. I'm three quarters away, I think, through it. I would highly recommend that even if you're not a salesperson, the fact that he makes you think differently makes that book yeah. worthwhile. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio. Always reminding you that selling ain't hard when you know how. Take care. Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. 